Occupy a Job on Wall Street is an autobiographical novel about New York City and the aughts, centering around a protagonist who is mentored by sociopaths. Episode 68, The Healthcare Mafia Imagine if you could have all your credit cards that had inadvertently been left in bars returned to you, and they told you what they had seen. They'd say those days were amazing and crazy, that it was truly the Wild West. That's how I felt in the new year when I was fortunate enough to catch up with a colleague via LinkedIn. We haven't spoken in 10 years, and he works in fintech now, which is a much better space than trading if you're refocusing your career. In any case, he'd listened to a few of our episodes and saw that there was enough material now in the library to disguise his identity, even if I was careless with what he told me, which I won't be. Anyway, if this guy's credit cards could talk, they'd say his hobbies included drinking tequila like he's in a worm-eating contest and getting in fistfights at important charity events. Let's call him... Leering. Leering was based in Boston and traded healthcare stocks in the golden years for the sector. They were golden years in part because of the decoding of the human genome and as U.S. healthcare spending began to inflect, trends that had been incubating forever but then suddenly exploded into the stock market. Furthermore, the big pharmaceutical companies had become essentially like utilities, leaving the development of tail-risk drugs to obscure biotechnology firms. But they were also golden years because so few traders knew what they were doing in this space, and that led to almost limitless opportunity. Outside of maybe Credit Suisse and Merrill, most banks just treated biotech as another four-letter stock to be traded, and thus were easy prey to people who knew the sector well. It's also worth pointing out that there was no easy way to build knowledge in biotech back then. Nothing would come up if you googled a drug name, for instance. Come to think of it, we probably didn't even have Adobe PDF to share documents. It's hard to explain the extent of the information arbitrage at the time, so let me try to do it with an example. One of my first jobs on Wall Street was typing out information about a company's balance sheet into a spreadsheet from a hard copy of their annual report. Think about that. Having a clueless drone like me copy data from a 100-page company release which had been mailed to us via the U.S. Postal Service, that constituted an informational advantage in the stock market. Before I get into how exactly we used to run over dumb money in the big banks, a quick explanation is needed about how these biotech stocks were actually traded back then. Stick with me here. I suspect we often think of traders living in a binary world of black and white, right and wrong, winners and losers. This is particularly true when you use an agent to trade because there's some price transparency and less so with what's known as principal trading, which is when a counterparty prices something up and theoretically takes risk on whatever you buy or sell to them. For the purposes of the stories that follow, we're going to use agency trading, listed stocks, and the New York Stock Exchange as interchangeable. Likewise, let's assume principal trading, over-the-counter trading, and the NASDAQ are all the same things as well. So if you traded listed stocks, you generally used an agent. You'd send someone in person down to the New York Stock Exchange to execute your order. A so-called specialist would manage the markets in one of those booths you've probably seen on TV. Supposedly, their job was to manage an orderly market, but in reality, of course, they were apex capitalists, there to make money for their family and a couple of friends. In their defense, at least in theory, if a buyer and a seller met at the booth, they could cross their stock to each other, the price would hit the tape where everyone else could see it, and you walk away with some sense that you understood what the outcome was. 
Over the counter, however? If you think what I just said about the NYSC needs to be unpacked a bit, this is a whole other animal. One way to understand the -the over-the-counter side of things is by using the concept of baseball arbitration. Baseball arbitration is an outcome initiated by two agents, where one or the other outcome is chosen without settling on a middle ground. It's mostly used in real estate, so let's say a rich guy dies and his will has two beneficiaries and both of them hire an agent to make sense of it. Mr. Cushman Wakefield says the properties are worth $31 million, while Ms. LaSalle says they're worth $50 million. The arbitrator decides Cushman has the better of the argument, and the property sells for 31. I used a widespread of 19 in this example to highlight the risk to both people in this sort of trade, but dollars or cents, the basic idea is that risk brings both counterparties naturally together before they walk in the door. My first introduction to principal trading, which I'll loosely refer to as OTC, was selling NASDAQ stocks in the go-go years of the internet bubble. But OTC markets still worked in a similar fashion in the early 2000s. For example, you might call up the Merrill trading desk and ask for a two-sided market in Biogen. Merrill could come back with 40 and a quarter, 40 and a half, 2 million by 1 million. What that meant is you could sell 2 million shares at $40.25 or buy a million at $40.50. Now, if you knew something the rest of Wall Street didn't, well, you can make an enormous amount of money back then. And we knew something that most of Wall Street didn't. We knew Leering. See, Leering's firm was near MIT and Harvard for a reason. These guys were made up of actual healthcare professionals and scientists. Genuinely smart people who understood that if a company press release said that their drug had failed its phase 2 clinical trial, it wasn't necessarily bad news. We're talking p-values and primary endpoints. Other things I won't get into. But it wasn't unusual for a stock to be down 10% and have Leering call you up and say it was dumb money selling. That the news was actually positive and the stock should be up 10%. Imagine that. 20% sitting on the table waiting to get picked up. The people who picked up that money back then were known as the healthcare mafia. And this is their story. In 2001, I was relatively new to the city and still struggling to be a sinner. But I worked for a decent hedge fund that wanted more healthcare exposure. My trading desk hired a new portfolio manager and he tells me he wants to pay Leering's firm as much as possible. With open-ended situations like this, you should always come in hot. So I call their trading desk in Boston, say who I work for, and in the same breath I ask them to buy 200 Cisco to get the account open. A few minutes later, they call me back with a fill on 200 little shares, which was about $4,000. I explain that, no, I'm not retail. I wanted to buy 200,000 shares and to get me an operator on the phone. Leering takes over, we execute the order, and, now that he's $12,000 richer in commissions, We quickly become fast friends. Leering used to come down to New York City to see clients, and he'd arrange to meet people at the Peninsula Hotel on Fifth Avenue. We meet up there after the bell, and he says he'd arranged massages for us, but I could also get a facial if I wanted. Now, if you've heard some of our prior episodes, you'd be forgiven for thinking this was code for rubbin' tugs and that I was supposed to be giving someone a facial, not getting one. But see, Leering worked for a legitimate research shop and therefore wasn't expected to provide any of the stickier stuff. Also, as far as I could tell, Leering's only outside interests were the Red Sox and fighting people who weren't Irish. 
So an hour later, we're at the Peninsula Rooftop Bar drinking $13 Heinekens, and I'm introduced to the first member of what will become the healthcare mafia. Let's call him Cleveland. Cleveland taught me two important things about Wall Street. Firstly, if you see a group of guys in suits standing around someone wearing jeans and a t-shirt, the guy in the t-shirt is the boss. So ever since that evening, I ditched the button down after hours and started wearing crappy t-shirts from Cheap Jacks in Koreatown. The second thing Cleveland taught me was, if I traded 200,000 shares of Cisco with the big banks and put six cents on it, they weren't making 12,000 in commission on it at all, but many times that number. This is how I learned that lesson, and also how I can properly explain OTC trading to you. The day after we met, Cleveland hit me up on AOL and asked if I wanted to troll some people. I'm like, sure. He tells me he had a favorite sales trader who was just taken off his account. The two of them got on really well and had the same twisted sense of humor. He used to call her up and ask for looks in Cox, John Hancock, Cummins, Layback and Wackett, that sort of thing. And whenever she was bid, he used to hit that. Because the new head trader was clueless and had dismissed her without asking him first, naturally Cleveland thought he had to make an example of him. I only vaguely know this guy, but all I've done is work since I got into the city. I still live in Crown Heights, for God's sakes, and I suspect I'm going to need some friends in the business, so I'm game for sure. Cleveland tells me to call up the head trader and say I'm a size buyer of Biogen. He'll go out as a seller 50 cents away, and then we'll keep moving our markets around to fuck with this guy. So I call up the trader and say, I'm figure bid for a million, Biogen. Treat me subject. What this means in layman's terms is, I would buy a million shares of Biogen at $40, but I'm not guaranteeing the order, that I might trade it away with someone else or cancel for any reason whatsoever. The head trader replies, You've got a million to buy? Holy cow, we just caught a seller of a million. Two minutes later, he calls me back and says the seller won't move off $42.50, but he sees a buyer outside of me and thinks I should take the stock in front of them. I'm like, holy fuck. This guy is offering me stock up $2 on a million shares? This prick thinks he can charge both clients six cents a share and make $2 on the spread. That's $120,000 in commission and another $2 million on the difference between the bid and the ask on a riskless transaction. And that's the second thing Cleveland taught me about how Wall Street really works. It's the invisible things that will end up costing you the most in this business. Anyway, this guy spends all day trying to put the print up, and we spend all day keeping it just out of reach for him. His spread gets tighter and tighter until he's willing to trade at agency just to save some face at his new firm. Finally, he calls me up and says the seller is being an asshole, but he's honestly worked really hard to represent my best interests. Was there anything else I could do to help him out? I'm like, yeah, get me a look in MBYC. My balls, your chin. Part 2 of the Healthcare Mafia will be out next week.